Hi, Dad. Hi, Celine. Did you know that you and I are about the same age if you count time living in the world? What do you mean? Well, as you know, I left a high-control religious group around the time you were born. So you're in your 20s then? <laughs> well, maybe in my head. The thing is, though, because I had all of my beliefs about morals, science, politics, religion, philosophy provided for me, I spent the last 25 years trying to work out what I should think about a whole bunch of stuff and work out what's going on. No one knows what's going on, Dad. <laughs> well, I think it's about time we did. What Should I Think About is a podcast that sets off on a lofty goal to make sense of the complicated, contradictory, confusing but wonderful thing we call the world. Hello and welcome to the What Should I Think About podcast. I'm Celine, And I'm Stephen. Uh, so today Celine is um, coping with a non-Covid related cold. Yes, I had, <laughs> I had a test and I'm all fine. How many tests? <laughs> Well, I've done loads of lateral flow ones, and then I also went and got a lab one done. Yeah, so um, so Celine's really just going to be um, asking the odd question, poking me in the right direction, I think, because uh, you're you're not quite up to full speed, are you, darling? Well, no, <laughs> not a hundred percent. Also, I don't know if everyone would would like to listen to an hour of sort of slowly dying Celine. <laughs> okay, so what are we talking about today then? biases biases yes so uh, uh, all sorts of different biases and i guess we'll talk about what they are how they kind of work if you like and how they relate to cult involvement because i think that is really really interesting um so yeah where do we start i mean where do we start it's a good question i don't know um we, we want to talk about a few particular biases I think, yeah. I mean, maybe you could break down what the term means because it's, I mean, people think bias hmm. just means when you're biased to something, but it's yeah. a big umbrella term for a lot. So it you is. could maybe break it down a bit. Okay. So we're talking psychology um, and I suppose cognitive psychology. And we're drawing on the work of Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. And the book um, that you definitely need to buy is called Thinking Fast and Slow. I've referred to this book a few times on the podcast. It's very interesting. Um, but I thought first we'd perhaps take a little example from that book. Um, and that's kind of a good way of introducing the whole subject, I think, to understand what the effect these sorts of biases have. So if I do this with you, Celine, and then if, um, as listeners, if you'd like to follow along with it and think about how you would answer these questions um, hopefully that will set us up quite nicely so we're going to talk about somebody called Linda so this is um, directly from the book Thinking Fast and Slow um, uh, again the link will be on the show notes um, so here we go Linda is 31 years old single outspoken and very bright she majored in philosophy at university as a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice and also participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. Okay, so that's Linda. So could you tell me a bit about Linda, please, Celine? Um, she uh, was a student. She was very smart. Uh, mm -hmm. She made it in, did you say philosophy? Philosophy, yeah. yeah. And she was a 
against nuclear. Yeah, she participated in anti-nuclear demonstrations. As a student, she was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice. Yes. Okay, so those are the main things we know about Linda. So what the participants in this experiment had to do, because this was actually an experiment they did with lots and lots of um, actually students, um, participants then had to rank in order the likelihood of Linda doing the following types of jobs, activities. Right. Um, now, obviously, podcasting isn't great for lists, so you don't need to remember all these, but I'll just go through them briefly. So basically, the, the participants had to work out which of these jobs she was most likely to do in the order that they thought. So we had teacher in elementary school. She works in a bookstore and takes yoga classes. She's active in the feminist movement. Um, She's a psychiatric social worker. She's a member of the League of Women Voters. She's a bank teller or cashier, as we'd call it, an insurance salesperson or a bank cashier and is active in the feminist movement so those were the kind of bullet points that they then had to arrange in the order of what they thought Mm -hmm. i'm not going to get you to do that because obviously you'd need it in front of you to kind of do all that but basically what they were really interested in so first first stage of the experiment is put put these jobs in order of what you think linda's a good match for remembering who linda is um So the summary of the results were that most people agreed that Linda is a good match for feminist activist, Mm -hmm. a pretty decent match for someone working in a bookstore, Mm -hmm. and not such a good match for being a bank teller or bank cashier. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the general gist of what people thought. And then what they did is they asked another question, and they said, um, which of these two things is Linda most likely to be? Is it A, a bank teller or a bank cashier, or B, a bank teller or bank cashier who is active in the feminist movement? So is it A, bank teller, or is it B, bank teller who's also active in the feminist movement? So what would you say is the most likely of those two answers? I think the presumption would be that it should be n- number two number that should yeah. be b uh though I, since it's about biases i presume it won't be that but... <laughs> yeah that's right so obviously setting it up like this you kind of you're suspicious mm. which is is your right to be so but actually if you think about it the result shocking result was that about 85 to 90 percent of these participants who remember were undergraduate students so they weren't you know dozy people mm. um about 85 to 90% chose the option that Linda was more likely to be a bank teller and an activist or an active in the feminist movement than just a bank mm-hmm. teller. Mm-hmm. So you've got these two choices, bank teller or bank teller and an activist in the feminist movement. Most people thought she was that second one. Mm. Now, if you think about that, that is utterly ridiculous, isn't it? Because mm. the chances of you being a bank teller is Mm -hmm. whatever that is Mm -hmm. and then the chances of you being a bank teller and something else has got to be less likely hasn't it well yeah i was just thinking like busyness wise i think people forget as well like when you finish work you a lot of the time how many people go out and go 
right, time to get yeah, but that's, on. Ir- that's completely irrelevant. Mm. It's completely irrelevant because she, we've already calculated in the chances of, of her being a bank teller. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one thing. If, let's say that's 20% chance. Mm. That's still going to be 20% chance that she's a bank teller. If we now add another condition on top of that, which is that she's also something else, it doesn't matter mm. what that is. It is got, it's got to be less likely. Yeah, absolutely yeah. always going to be less likely because it's got to fulfill two conditions whereas the first one only has to fulfill one condition mm-hmm. the second one has that condition plus another one on top of it mm. so it's always going to be less likely that she's a bank teller and something else even if it's something that kind of matches to what we think she's likely to be mm-hmm. and that's at the heart of this problem so this is a phenomenon that um, psychologists have been trying to work out for a long time. How come smart, intelligent people like you and me just get sucked into this idea that, oh, well, because she seems to be a good match for feminist, it must be that one. Um, And that's really at the heart of this problem. So there's a whole kind of field that's grown up around this. And there's literally... Um, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of these sorts of biases that have been identified. So we're going to have a look at how those kind of biases happen. And then, yeah, maybe we talk about, well, definitely we talk about how those apply to cults. Mm -hmm. I'm with you so far. Are you with me so far? Yeah, yeah. What questions have you got? Um, Yeah, so you're going to, uh, explain some different biases because I've basically picked some for mm. you to break down for us. Um, so obviously there's loads and loads of different biases. Mm. Dad, you can put the uh, maybe the link in the show notes so people can look at it in their own time as well if they want to. Yeah, so there's, uh, there's a couple of cracking little websites actually to go to. So I'll put the links on the uh, show notes. There's a graphic that's really, really useful. It's um, from a website called visualcapitalist.com and it's every single cognitive bias bias in one infographic. So it's like a wheel, essentially, that um, you can see all of the biases on there. And then the other one that I'd recommend is the decisionlab.com, which literally goes through, well, perhaps not all of them, but loads and loads of them, just gives you a summary of each one. Yeah, and the cool thing with the visual capitalist one is that it breaks it down into different mm. segments. So I've picked one from the four different segments it's broken it down into. So the different ones are like not enough meaning. So like biases we use when, we have, when there's not enough meaning, biases mm. we use when there's too much information, mm. when uh, we're deciding what to remember and we need to act fast. So I've picked yeah. one from each okay, uh, cool. to go through. Okay, well, um, let's take essentialism, which is one of the ones that you've, highlighted Mm. um so essentialism is basically um the type of bias that that says things have an essential nature if you like so we assume that something has an essential nature and that that basically is where stereotyping and so as archetypes and all those sorts of things come in um and so that that leads to lots of sort of social assumptions about uh, about people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, remembering that biases aren't always completely wrong. So you know, sometimes a bias might 
lead us to make an assumption about something that is is correct. Um, but we're not coming at it from a logical way of reasoning it out. We've just kind of we've done a shortcut. So we might get lucky sometimes, <laughs> um, but not necessarily. And and anyway, even if we do get it right, it's not we've not arrived at it through a kind of logical, rational thinking process. Um, so we'll talk a little bit more about why we do this. But essentialism is this idea that, oh, this thing belongs to this category. Um, therefore, that has the nature of being this thing. So uh, I suppose a good example of this would be, as we're doing, recording this podcast, um, we are on the Friday before the final of the European Championships football. So that's going to be England versus Italy. And so, you know, there's all sorts of stereotypes that then people use in the commentary and in the way that we might think about that match. You know, the passionate Italians, for instance. Um, we might talk about, you know, the efficient Germans. Um, and these are essentially what we're saying is that these things have an essential nature that we kind of, that is part of, of who they are. Um, so it's it's wrapped up with this idea that um, one thing can represent a whole category. Um, and in fact, that's quite useful to think about that one because it relates to how biases occur. So let's just talk about that briefly. Um, so according to uh, Kahneman and Tversky, there's three types of what they describe as heuristic. So a heuristic is like a rule of thumb, mm. uh, which kind of works for most of the time. So it's, it's a very convenient way of working out the world, understanding the world, making sense of the world, is that we have all these rules of thumb. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have to work out every time. Um, for instance, you know, crossing the road can be dangerous. That's a rule of thumb, um, which is a really useful heuristic, isn't it? You know, crossing the road is dangerous. It's useful. We don't have to, each time we're going to cross the road, we don't need to make an assessment that says, right, now do I need to worry about crossing the road or not? Mm. We've just got that embedded as a heuristic. Crossing the road is dangerous. Therefore, you're going to go on from there and take action. So heuristics are really useful. They are shortcuts so that we don't have to do the calculation every single time we're about mm -hmm. to make a decision. So I think I don't think we could actually but exist without them. I guess they take time to become heuristic in your brain. Because when you're yeah. a kid, you don't have any of those shortcuts, do you? Well, that's part of this socialising process. So that's part of what it means to grow up um, in a community, in a social um, situation, is that you're learning all these heuristics. Mm -hmm. You know, um, crossing the road is dangerous. Um some people can be dangerous don't talk to strangers these sorts of things that we are taught either directly or through language uh, we're taught about some these sorts of of kind of shortcuts if you like mm -hmm. to understanding the world and once we accept them they're very difficult to overcome if you like so sometimes they're useful sometimes they're not um Either way, though, they are they are very well embedded. By the time we get to an age where we can actually think about these things um, with any kind of you know rational thought, 
um, I found an article about this in in a journal that's um, I've, I've seen this journal before. I've read stuff from this journal before. Um, I don't know if we'll keep this in, but it's got the most ridiculous name. <laughs> <laughs> it's called the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences of the United States of America. And for some reason, they've chosen the acronym for this to be PNAS. <laughs> oh, Lord. P-N-A-S. So this is from PNAS. Um, and they did a, uh, they've published this piece, which is Cultural Transmission of Social Essentialism. So basically what they were trying to work out is, you know, how is it that um, children adopt this essentialist um, bias, you know, and how do they grow up with it? And I won't go into all of the, uh, you know, all of the the details of the experiment, but they actually did some experiments to try and um, see whether, you know, you could actually observe these biases being created by creating sort of imaginary characters and imaginary characteristics and they found that the use of um, general categorization like you know boys like blue or boys like football or girls like cooking those sorts of I suppose we would now describe them as old-fashioned sexist tropes are are part of the mechanism they're Mm -hmm. not the full story but they're part of part of the mechanism through which we then start to have kind of these essentialist views and that you know goes all the way to you know boys are naughty and mischievous girls are kind and caring nurturing and all those sorts of generalizations that we make Mm. so it's very much linked to heuristics which as a group they're called representativeness heuristics Mm. so they're all about the ways we represent categories and we represent the world so that's just one of, of a lot of them, really, that are about essentially categorizing things. Well, this is like that, therefore, it must have this nature. That's really what essentialism is. But then there's a whole bunch of other things that, that relate to that. So obviously, we always like talking about cults. Um, and one of the things that I thought while I was looking up these different bits was... Um, how do cults sort of take advantage of these things because i think i'm not saying that they go and look up all the biases and go okay Mm. which ones are we going to use but i think just by happenstance they will be taking advantage of these things in order to get what they want do what they want what do you think yeah i think that's right i mean if we take the one that we've just looked at um essentialism i suppose um i think and and all sorts of other representative heuristics these rules of thumb that we kind of just assume are true um because of perhaps social um customs or the way that we've been taught things i think that does relate to cults and groups especially if you're raising children in that group Mm -hmm. so um think about the world and people in the world or worldly people you're you're taught from infancy that worldly people are bad you know they don't love jehovah they're worldly so this is my the group that i grew grew up in as jehovah's witness um i was taught that you know these are bad people these are worldly people um and that's that's in their very nature that's that's what they're like you know Mm. now if they start to become jehovah's witnesses then our view of them will change 
So they then switch category in our mind. They're now a different sort of category. But as long as they are a worldly person, there is a uh, an underlying badness about them. Um, mm. And I think that definitely affects how you would view anybody, actually, um, regardless of, you know, any evidence to the contrary. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that definitely affects people's view of what it's like in the world and what people are like in the world. You know, I was led to believe that, and this is something that came out in the, the research that I did with, with people, you know, um, people in the world that you can't find proper friends in the world. They'll all be after something. Um, they'll lie mm. to you. And, uh, you know, that's, that's, they're just worldly people, you know? Um, and that was, yeah. So I think it, yeah. And that's, that's from it, from a young age, you're socialized to believe that. Um, mm. when you come into an organization like that, um, that obviously work, that work is done later, but it's, I think it's particularly powerful when you're a youngster. So you essentialize good and bad to the extremes, I guess. So. Well, you, you attach um, characteristics to individuals based upon a category. Mm. So worldly people or worldly person equals this. Um, brother or sister, brother and sister in the truth represents that. Mm. So you'll assume that somebody who's a, who's a brother or, or who's a sister within the organization, they have a set of qualities that you you assume mm-hmm. are going to be there um but you don't know anything about them all you know is that they have this label as jehovah's witness or whatever the group is mm. um so i think that's it can actually be um quite dangerous but that's uh, that's definitely a a bias i think that that is is played on is used by these groups yeah um that's a that's a heuristic that um i, I mentioned which was a a representative or representativeness heuristic. In other words, there's a whole group of these biases that are around taking shortcuts about what we know about people mm-hmm. based on stereotypes, archetypes, um, how we've been brought up to believe and, and what we've been brought up to believe. Um, let's have a look at some of the others that you you asked me to look at. Yeah, so I think we've covered essentialism quite nicely. Should we yeah. have a look at another one? Yeah, so conservatism bias you, you asked me to look at. Yeah, I found that quite interesting as a bias because I've not heard it as a bias before. Obviously, in England, we have big C conservatives for party and there's small C conservatives for, like, I don't know, a way of being. But I didn't know what conservatism meant in the biases kind of way yeah it's it's not really anything to do with politics it's it's more to do yeah that's what i was interested in yeah so it's it's more to do with um kind of going with what you know Mm. um so it's it's often used in financial investments and so on where people will continue to invest in the same things that have given them returns in the past and they'll kind of ignore um alternative evidence and data that says actually this isn't the best option anymore you know change to something else Mm. um so even if even if the logic would say you know this this other investment is currently outperforming and is likely to outperform this other one Mm. 
Um, is it a bit sunk cost then? Well, it's it again. It's of this family um, mm. of heuristics, which um, is called anchoring and adjustment heuristics. Mm. So there's a there's a whole family of biases around kind of sticking with what you know, being anchored to a particular thing mm. and finding it difficult to move from this mm-hmm. um so a good example of anchoring is if you if you let's say you wanted to sell something to somebody and um you put an ad in the um you know in the free ads or mm-hmm. on whatever it is um gumtree or whatever you wanted to sell this thing mm. and you said um the, the the price is around you, you want offers around 50 pounds or 50 dollars mm-hmm. um what you'll find is even if that thing wasn't isn't worth 50 dollars people would likely they'll look at that number and they'll kind of they'll come down a bit from that mm. um, it's a it's an age-old tactic really in terms of getting people to pay more for something than it's actually worth um if you if you sort of start it high then even though they know it's not worth fifty pounds, they'll find it really difficult to go down to ten pounds. Mm. Even though it's probably worth ten pounds, if you start at fifty, people find it quite difficult to come right down to ten. Mm. It's because you're you've been anchored into this this number. Mm. And even if even if that number has absolutely nothing to do with it, you'll still find it difficult. So they did some experiments where they gave people um a number just mm-hmm. not related to the thing at all and then ask them another question to estimate something and they found that they could manipulate what the answer was based upon the first number they gave bizarre mm. just absolutely weird so this idea around anchoring we seem to find it difficult once we've got something in our mind it's very difficult to shift from that and adjust from this mm. so um conservatism as a as a bias kind of relates to that if we it's a type of anchoring heuristic we're 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 stuck on this thing and it's very difficult then to move away from it completely so we will always keep going back to that as a reference point essentially is there an example of people let me read to you the um the experiment they did um so this is Daniel Kahneman talking. He said, Amos, who's the person he did the work with, Amos Tversky, Amos and I once rigged a wheel of fortune. You know, so a wheel where you switch it around like the old TV show. It was marked from zero to 100, but we had it built so that it would stop only at the number 10 or 65. (laughs) We recruited students of the University of Oregon as participants in our experiment. One of us would stand in front of a small group, spin the wheel, and asked them to write down the number on which the wheel stopped, which, of course, was either 10 or 65. Mm -hmm. We then asked them two questions. First question was, is the percentage of African nations among UN members larger or smaller than the number you just wrote? Mm -hmm. So whatever number they wrote, either 10 or 65, they had to answer, the percentage of African nations among UN members was it larger or smaller than that number they just wrote? Mm-hmm. And then the second question was, what is your best guess of the percentage of African nations in the UN? What's guessing, your best guess? 
I'm guessing that they wrote down a number close to the one that span, yeah. even though that has nothing to do with anything. Absolutely. So the spin of the Wheel of Fortune, even one that is not rigged, cannot possibly yield useful information about anything. And the participants in our experiment should simply have ignored it. But they did not ignore it. The average estimates of those who saw 10 and 65 were 25% and 45% respectively. Isn't that bizarre? It's very silly. It's very Again, silly, but it's just like a quick brain. People. No, yeah. it's just quick brain thinking. <laughs> exactly. And that's why um, their book is called Thinking Fast and Slow. Mm. So what they identified was that actually we have two systems of thinking. We have our system one thinking and we have our system two thinking. And system one thinking is the fast one. It's the Basically, it's the one that goes... Well, it just kind of responds. It reacts. Let me just find my reference. Why you find your reference? Mm. I'm just going to throw this out there. People in the in the Twitterverse tell me if you think this is cool, because I just had a cool idea. Don't forget that we're also uh, not just podcasters. We're creators. We create things other than the podcast. Um, mm. And I was like, you know, it'd be such a fun show to go to, like a theatre show. It's like the biases show, <laughs> where basically you get people to like just do a bunch of stuff like this, but put mm. a story and a plot into it somehow mm. and just orchestrate them to a certain scenario through the power of biases. Mm. That would be really mm. fun. Doing yeah, stuff like Because everyone loves it when they do stuff. I mean, why do people like going to Darren Brown and having him mess yeah. with your brain? Yeah, absolutely. You know, But like that would mm. be fun, wouldn't it? If you're doing I mean, some sort of... It would. It's what magicians... Magicians make use of these things all the time. Yeah, just this do is, it This a... is how they do it, really, yeah. Just do it in, like, a plot, mm. plot, mm. Uh, plot-based theatrical mm. way. That would be right. fun. Um, yeah, so system one thinking is fast, instinctive, automatic, and unconscious. So it's that, it's that fast thinking that, again, mm. uses these heuristics, these rules of thumb, and just kind of responds. It doesn't actually go through... The, the deep thinking process. System two is slow, thoughtful, calculating, rational, and conscious. Mm. Um, system one is the thing, I guess the thinking that gets us through the day, really. It does all of the legwork. Um, system two is the conscious, thoughtful individual, if you like. That's the voice. If you hear a voice when you talk to yourself, <laughs> um, that's the, that's your kind of voice inside. System one makes snap judgments, generates feelings, notices things that are abnormal. Um, system two is the more rational, thought through stuff. And the way I put it on one of my courses, because I do this in one of my management courses, is system one doesn't do the maths, but is a sucker for a good story. Mm. So... System one likes heuristics and a good story. That's why we tend to think Linda is going to be a bank teller and involved in the feminist movement because that that's a good story. Um, system two can do the maths, but is a bit lazy. So mm -hmm. just let's kind of system one get on with things. And unless you actually pull yourself up and slow your thinking down, you're likely to make a lot of these types of biases or these errors, mm. which I think is quite interesting. That is interesting. I like the idea that it's just Lacey sitting in the back seat. She's like, yeah. system one will deal with it. Yeah. 
yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fine. I'm sure it's fine. <laughs> that's I feel what like, your system two is doing all the time. Yeah, I feel like this is this is just a joke before anyone gets like upset. But I feel like if you live in system one all the time, you probably live a happier life. And if you live in system two more of the time, you're more like stressed. <laughs> Maybe. I feel like I live in system two more often. <laughs> Overthinking it. Maybe. I think I want I want to be uh I want to live in system one more. <laughs> live a live a more chilled out life where things are easy <laughs> and make sense. Um Yeah, I'm not sure. No, it's just a joke, like I said. It's yeah, I, I I can see what you mean, but the, the, the problem is 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 you're gonna make a lot of Errors, which oh, no, we do. I think everyone else will dislike you, um, but yeah. you'll be happy. <laughs> um, so we've covered two of these kind of families mm. of heuristics. Um, let's let's have a look at, at the other one before I move on, uh, which is the availability heuristic. Um, and the availability heuristic is again is kind of a family of biases that is about what we what we notice and how important we think things are based around what is available to us um, and that's often around our memory and, and what we've just seen so you know if um, I mean the classic one is you know there's just been a, a terrible air crash mm. um, and you happen to be flying the next day or a couple of days later um, because all this thing was in the news um, you're going to take that, you're going to overestimate the chances of something bad happening because it's it's in your memory, it's fresh in your mind. And terrorism works in the same way. You know, the chances of, of being a victim of terrorism are incredibly small. If you compare that to the dangers of, um, you know, crossing the road or driving to work or getting on your bike, the danger, the risks of, of terrorism are, are much, much less. Of, yeah. of being a victim but you know what is it that people are concerned about that that if there's a terrorist atrocity that's the thing that they're most worried about mm. so if you go to an event and again there's recently been a terrorist attra- attack the thing you're most worried about is is a terrorist attack but you're much more likely to have an accident on the way um, and have an injury because of that mm. than you are of being attacked by a terrorist but we just find it difficult to accept that because of what's available in our, in our mind in our memory um, and again going back to cults and um, high control groups and the way they work they work on this a lot they play to the availability heuristic a lot and they do that because they constantly tell you the things they want you to remember mm. um, so you know life lessons around obeying god or about obeying the leader and what's going to happen if you don't, and what will happen if you do. And that's constantly reaffirmed to you over and over again. And that's always going to be at top of mind. So other things, other risks that are actually are there, but you're just not aware of them, or they're not as available to your thinking, just you downgrade those. Mm. So there's quite a lot of those availability heuristics as well. Um, yes. Can I can I talk about a couple of my favourites? Of course. Um, so there's two that kind of come together, which I think are, are absolutely fascinating. One is called the fundamental attribution 
error. Um, it's so it's so well known that it's got its own little acronym. So it's called the FAE, the Fundamental Attribution Error. Mm. Um, and the Fundamental Attribution Error basically means that we overemphasize the personality or the person over the situation when making judgments about other Ooh. people's behavior. It's definitely a bit culty, isn't it? Absolutely. Charismatic leader, baby. Indeed, yeah. So that, that's right, either for good or, or not so good. So we we see the person more than we see the situation. Mm. Yeah, and again, um, it's not inherently a cool thing. I'm just saying that they would take advantage of that. Indeed, in- and it, work, it works both ways. I mean, the way I normally try to explain it is um, if you work in a place, you know, you work in a shop or you work in a anywhere, really, um, and somebody's late for work, one of your teammates is late for work, um, depending on what you think about that person, if you know, if you think about them as being a bit lazy and so on, you're likely to um, attribute that lateness to being something about them. So, mm-hmm. you know, that's typical of him. You know, he just can't get up in the morning and he's too lazy. He doesn't start out in time. He doesn't give himself enough time to get to work. If there's anything that happens, no wonder you're late, you know. So you're attributing the fact that he's late because of his personality. So I know who you're thinking of right now. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, so that's that's the fundamental attribution. And it could well be an error because... You actually don't know the situation. You're just assuming that it's because of him. It is. It is because of him. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, there's another bias. So it's a separate one, but it kind of works in tandem called the self-serving error. And the self-serving error goes like this. When assessing your own performance, we overly attribute positive results to our own efforts, skills mm. and personality. Whereas when things go wrong, we overly attribute external factors to the result. Ah, yes. So if we're Continues late, to hold true. <laughs> if we're late, it was because of this traffic, these roadworks that were suddenly popped up, or this idiot who mm. was driving really slowly, or something else. Um, and when we do really well, we look at ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back and think, "Yeah, we did really well with that. Aren't I clever?" Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in both cases it could well be actually very little to do with this it's just the situation that meant that that happened mm-hmm. so i think that those are fascinating the uh, fundamental attribution error and the self-serving error kind of work together to uh, yeah to, to give us a certain view of the world mm. um, another one that i like is the halo effect i think we've spoken about this one before um, so you can tell us what the halo effect is Celine. Uh, pretty people, <laughs> people like them. <laughs> that's that's what I get from it. <laughs> You're okay. more likely to trust and believe in attractive people, yeah. whatever that does mean. Yeah, I mean it's it's not it's not only that. It's basically if you if you attribute um, something good to somebody in one domain, you are likely to assume that they're good at something else in a different domain. Um, But that also applies to attractiveness. So if somebody's good looking and attractive, then 
you tend to that good feeling that you've got about that person because they happen to be attractive, you tend to transfer that onto something else. Let's say honesty. Mm. That's why people will trust, you know, a good looking person perhaps more than somebody who's not. And and actually that's those tropes are played into all the time mm. in in stories and so on. You know, the the hero is also always handsome or beautiful. Um, the baddie is always ugly, you know, mm. a witch or, you know, somebody that, uh, that that is a monster, you know. So I think that really plays into our culture quite, quite profoundly, actually. Okay, so there's there's some biases there that um, we we could cover a lot more. There's a there's a couple that perhaps really do relate to high control groups, cults, and so on. That's perhaps worth looking at. Mm. um and one of those is the sunk cost fallacy which is my fave yeah it's kind of related say it at least every day (laughs) um so that that also relates to the commitment bias so commitment bias sunk cost fallacy kind of uh work together i suppose um so what's your understanding of that then rather than just be me talking all the time um the sunk cost fallacy is when you put a lot of work in mm-hmm. and it's time to stop it's not it's not working and it's time to give up but you don't <laughs> so like with the yeah. with the being in the witnesses for instance some people might stop believing but keep going i guess that's how they keep their dissonance going is that because they've spent their life doing it they can't stand for it to not be true after all so they stay in mm-hmm. or you might um you might have been making here's a here's a less uh, less sad example i the first time i tried making homemade gyoza i'd spent ages making it so i bloody well ate those gyoza even though they were disgusting so sunk yeah. cost fallacy i was it like they're fine they're tasty they were not tasty it was not fine no. the dough was too thick flour floury dough um is not a nice Taste, it was too it? thick. It should have. I should have just deep fried them when they were that thick and just had empanadas instead. <laughs> to be honest, but yeah. there we are. Um, oh. But yeah, that sunk cost fallacy for you. I spent yeah. like a whole afternoon doing it, so I was mm. gonna damn well eat those. Gyoza. Absolutely. Um, so, so what you're doing is you're you're thinking of all the time you spent on it, or time and effort and money. So it works with all sorts of things, mm-hmm. investments. It works with um, yeah, an investment of any sort, of time, money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Emotion. Um, <laughs> it's really hard to to take that loss. Mm-hmm. Um, you're just because once you give up, it's over. Whereas you you're like, if I just keep, if I keep grinding, I might be able yeah. to make it all worth it. But. <laughs> You keep digging that hole. Digging that hole. Yeah, I mean, it's part of this loss aversion as well. So uh, we mentioned this before. Loss aversion is another type of bias. Uh, It's more painful for us to consider the loss of something than it is to perhaps miss out on something that we could have had. Mm. So if we feel like we've had it, losing it is is very, very difficult. Um, So, yeah, losing all that time and effort and energy or money or whatever it is, um, that's gone down the drain is very, very difficult emotionally to stomach. Um, and I do think that is a big factor when you're in a high control group, cults, 
or even a coercive relationship. You know, if you've been married to somebody for 20 years and you've had children with them and, mm. um, uh, you know, you've, you've built a life together, you've got all that investment of your time and effort and, um, and emotions as well. And I think it must be really difficult to say, right, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to draw a line under that. I'm going to say I'm going to leave that, which, again, is one of the reasons why I think it's important to have a slightly different narrative than I, I hear a lot of the time, um, where you're kind of breaking completely with your former past or your former self. Mm. Your, um, because I think that plays into the sunk cost fallacy that, that you don't you know, you don't want to start your life again. Um, and I understand that. Um, it's a big thing to imagine. And if you, if we somehow could help people to see that whilst there were many facets of your life that you can leave behind, but there's still a lot that you've done that you can, mm -hmm. you can hold on to and you can say, you know, that was important to me. That was part of my formative years um you know dr lalich keeps saying i turned a bad thing into a good thing that's one of the things that she keeps saying and mm -hmm. and i think that's a really useful um way of thinking that's a that's a new heuristic mm. that you can actually start to adopt that helps you to accept your past and think about it as not just something entirely to leave behind it's different it's integrated into who, who you who you are that's just my that's just my feelings about it when I could do that when I could say yeah you know the old Steve that knocked on doors and gave talks on the platform and so on and so on that I'm still that same person I just do different things now um, and yeah I've grown I've got a different outlook on life um, but I don't feel like I have to put old Steve in a dungeon you know that's no. still me i'm still who i am now partly because of him mm -hmm. and that's okay i'm cool with that yeah um so you that don't might live in help. a world of binaries anymore Bi no. down with the binaries so that might help with that sunk cost um, fallacy but yeah so sunk cost fallacy and commitment bias um uh, again good examples of of why people stay in these these groups Okay, so obviously we've uh, finished all of biases. We've gone through every single one. Yeah, no more left to talk about biases. <laughs> um, obviously not. Maybe we'll do some more in the future. Mm. But yeah. um, for now, Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Roll music. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the Week. Tweet of the week, tweet of the week, tweet of the week, tweet of the week, tweet of the week. Okay, yes, so tweet of the week. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, probably, uh, oh no, 2nd of July. Recently. I, recently, I, oh no, 1st of July, I asked the question, doing the podcast, we've noticed that homeschooling of Jehovah's Witnesses seems much more common than it was when I was growing up. What are the implications of this for children? I know it's something that you've been really interested in, Celine. I care a lot about it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've asked our guests about it quite regularly. So we've we've been getting It some... worries me. I want to mm. see what people think we should be doing about it. 
Yeah. So lots of people engage with this, lots and lots and lots. So thank you very much, everybody, for engaging with this question. Uh, so Kingdom Zebedee said, um, I was a homeschool JW in the UK. I lacked so much social skills compared to my peers. Going to college at 16 was my first taste of the real world. It opened my eyes and my zeal as a JW collapsed massively as a result until eventually leaving at 21. Mm -hmm. uh, when we would have JW home education groups going on school trips etc I'd often see how many of my peers were not mentally developed as well as I was luckily as my mum is rather intelligent while some other parents lack the knowledge and skills to teach to home teach their kids um, so this is a thread for Kingdom Zebedee I would attend a swimming club going five times a week which helped me develop social skills to a degree though I could, couldn't associate with them outside the club. However, my younger brother was very socially awkward because he had no friends outside of the local Kong till 16 years old. Mm. So that was really interesting. Thank you, Kingdom Zebedee. Um, so that was in the UK. Um, I don't know how old Kingdom Zebedee is now. They were 16 um, or up to 16, but it seems like it's fairly recent, that one. Um, Jada, I was asked to be homeschooled because I didn't want to deal with being the oddball as I wasn't able to celebrate anything. I wish I wouldn't have though now as I'm all grown. I think that was dumb and should have just celebrated and led that good old double life. <laughs> so I like that, Jada. Um, we were always counseled and warned against youths. Are you leading a double life? So we were mm -hmm. very conditioned to worry about that. Um, but you're right, Jada. Uh, <laughs> Mum needs to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that's a really, it's a really good point. Um, I remember me and my brother asked if we could be homeschooled or what our idea was, could there be like a Jehovah's Witness school where we mm. could go to? And that's because as a kid, you, yeah, you get fed up with just being the whipping boy. You know, you get fed up with it. Mm. You don't want to be the weird one anymore. Mm -hmm. um marcel i was pulled out of school uh, on grade seven and homeschooled my younger brother went to school for one year my education was stolen from me i am bitter about it to this day mm -hmm. uh yeah marcel I, I completely understand that i felt the same for a long time uh bye bye watchtower says today's schools teach critical thinking exploring ideas on various subjects independent thinking and social skills all these items are evil in the watchtower land mm -hmm. resolved with homeschooling i wonder uh, if yeah. um what the general wisdom is from the organization itself on homeschooling if they encourage homeschooling over public schooling yeah i don't i don't know what the latest um no because i know obviously whenever we talk to people it's normally a parental mm. choice um yeah i wonder if there is as they call it light on that as to what's the better yeah. way maybe um, we'll have to do some research and yeah see and find we'll out to find out a bit more um john says very common in my family's congregation now um sasha 58 stroke 56 says you lose your ability to interact properly with children your age you lose the ability to interact with other family dynamics because you're only in your own. 
you may mm. appear to be more mature because you're forced to be around adults but you're a kid i think that's absolutely right yeah yeah it, and it, it the reason it concerns me is because of all these social reasons which are obviously really important but then also um the fact that you ha- the the people i know at least have never sat any of their exams so they don't yeah. have a single qualification to their name in any degree yeah. not even you know not even GCSEs or BTECs they don't have anything mm. and the thing is because you can get a job with just GCSEs you definitely can but I don't most jobs do require you to at least have a C in maths and English just even just those two things but they don't do that because I guess they don't see the value in it because we'll get you a job with the JWs and it'll be fine because you don't need it to window clean but even yeah. just working in a shop they require that of you so you know I guess other than yeah labouring jobs mm. you don't have opportunities and then if you do leave and you need to find you know you might if you are working for JWs because the community finds you a job but then you leave they're probably going to get rid of you you know potentially which mm. i've heard other people saying that they lose their jobs you're going to need a new job to support yourself i mean what do you do you've got mm. not even a gcse to your name yeah it, it's there's some practical problems obviously like that um and i just it, wonder it, if it's, it's a trapping facility i don't well, know well it feels, it like, feels it, doesn't like it 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 does feel you, like you it. literally There's... can't leave because you'll be economically yeah, exactly yeah burdened as well as emotionally yeah. Uh, Producer Bob said, I am witness to this happening regularly in my area and I found the children to be socially inept to the point of almost being backwards. Mm. I can tell straight away if someone has been homeschooled, no idea how to interact with other humans, can't seem to play properly, etc. Yeah. Um, so I did I did respond to that. Um, I think, you know, that's obviously Producer Bob's um, observation and, you know, I'm sure that's right. I think mm. it isn't just about education, is it, at school? It is also about socialisation. And mm-hmm. so I think that's right. Well, the first the few years would... of school, you're basically just yeah. being taught to play nicely. Exactly. I would say that I, I always try to temper this a little bit. And obviously I've done this with yourself because you're very anti-homeschooling. Mm. I do know some people that have um, homeschooled the kids and, and it's worked out very well. And But what they do is they make sure that they... Um, find other ways for them to socialize mm-hmm. so they might belong to clubs yeah. and things like that well exactly but because of because of the way that exactly. the jws are and other groups yeah. that do this it's it's specifically feels like it's been done to stop them socializing um uh, absolutely yeah. and like i said i know someone that they're incredibly clever they're doing a degree in physics now but they were homeschooled until they were 16 and they didn't yeah. go to school but they're, they're fine like they yeah they were a bit awkward because i mean you just you're a bit more nervous when you've done something less aren't you mm. so like they've not done the whole going to school you know making friends in that way before but you know then you wouldn't know and they're very clever but their parents are both very you know clever people yeah. with jobs in environments that meant they could they could teach them quite well do you know what mm. i mean so yeah, yeah different scenarios whereas like you said a lot of the time nothing wrong with this but i mean you know you're being taught by someone that you know left school as early as they could leave because of pioneering potentially then yeah. had their own kids 
don't you know don't have any qualifications themselves then teaching mm. you like i don't see how that's yeah and as we've said work. before you know the next thing is that those if those kids stay as witnesses and they have yeah. children they'll be homeschooling their children how is this um, working how is this working um nico schmay hayes says of course the social deprivation among peers not that it mattered when friends were few to none because we mm. never celebrated holidays birthdays etc the ever narrowing perspective in critical thinking skills meaning that doubt or debate would seldom come up mm. um yeah absolutely. and ian puddock who is the actually the grand owner of two or the proud owner of two t-shirts mm. uh, evil sheep t-shirts so thank you ian um he says right now this was interesting this started a little bit of a discussion there were not sure if they still exist exclusive jehovah's witnesses only schools in the mm. u.s Interesting. um and there were other people that confirmed that so yeah you wonder whether that is something that's that's gonna come if anything the thing is like it's like if if you're an actual school there must be more checks and balances than when you're just at home so i'm like is it is it better and i'm like mm. do you know what i mean like i don't mm just because they'll have to be like monitored in a different way and like maybe the education would have to be better because at least in England we have stuff like Ofsted and you couldn't literally just be teaching JW stuff all day and and not get yeah. disbanded yeah I, I, yeah good question I don't know so I don't know um, like my mm. my gut is like eh bad but I'm like but maybe it's better than literally just being at home yeah where there's no one to check on you mm. yeah possibly but I don't know. Uh, Regardless, poor, I don't like either of it. No. Poor Poor says homeschooling is more popular now than before in general, but I wonder how many JWs take advantage of all the outs of all the outside the home programs, mm. sports, special courses, etc., that most families do now. Um so yeah, pr- perhaps then the extra uh regularity of homeschooling in JWs is just reflecting wider society i don't know um dr cullenthu former guest on the show really that is a concerning development she says Mm. um jared gardner i was homeschooled k12 i was in a congregation near bethel so there weren't many witness kids in the area it was extremely lonely and to this day i'm socially awkward as hell Mm. um yeah i think that must be really tough mustn't it i know because that's the thing children need other children yeah as much as at school you find it it, it's not easy but at least you're all going through at the same time you know and you're being kids together yeah um ellie said i knew a few that only schooled about jw's the witnesses the children won't be prepared for anything outside this there is a jw home school network that parents make friends in the children have no outside associations. Their information is monitored. No unbaptized members are allowed. Hmm, interesting. Mm. Um, Brandon Marlowe says, school was a nice escape for me. Homeschool JWs don't have that. <laughs> yeah, good point. Uh, Paul, sorry, Raul A. Raisgo said, homeschooling is getting popular, especially among certain evangelical groups. Mm. Public schools in California provide assistance and even charter schools are catering to this demographic. So, yeah, it's it sounds like it's part of this general kind of atomizing of society. Mm. It's kind of worrying, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, Jessica 
says, ah, homeschool, another solution to a problem Watchtower created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watchtower creates many kids with low self-esteem, excessive fear, depression, embarrassment, old, odd man out with odd and rigid beliefs and behaviours. They're bullied at school. Solution, isolate kids via homeschool. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, it feels absolutely right to me that, mm-hmm. you know, Again, that was why I, I wanted to be homeschooled or, or go to a special school because the, the problem of feeling left out was definitely created. Mm. Uh, sex self, Self-exiled says, unheard of in my generation. Yeah, I mean, that's me too, really. Um, that's why I was kind of interested. Mm. Uh, Jane Geek, not having the ability to make friends, in turn may affect working with co-workers. So, yeah. And the way it might affect us going forward. Mm-hmm. So there are so many actually. Um, I've not. So yeah, read them I want all, you to check out the thread. Yeah, check out that thread. Really interesting. In the end, I just had to say well, thank you, everybody, and I had to move on from that because I had lots of other things to do. But that was really interesting, and um, yeah, it's perhaps an area where we need to do a little bit more research to find out Maybe how we should big speak the problem to is. Someone as well in education and see yes. what they think. I think that's a good idea. Let's see if we can get. If anybody, if anybody, yeah, if anybody works in education, would like to reach out to us and maybe talk about it on the podcast, that would be really interesting. Yeah, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was. Yeah, Yeah, our DMs are open. They are. Yes. Okay. Let's do that. Let's hope we get somebody. If not, we'll uh, we'll We'll be on the search. But if somebody just already exists, yeah, yeah. Okay. So that was tweet of the week. Whoop whoop. Tweet of the week, 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 tweet of the week. Good. So um, I suppose that the last thing I want to say is about the Patreon. Um, so if you are interested in supporting the show, if you're enjoying it and you want to be part of it, um, that would be great. Um, there are various different levels and start at a pound. So we've named these levels after some of the biases that we've talked about. Um, so you can you can actually join for just a pound yeah. at the loss aversion level. Nice. Um, so yes, um, that's the Patreon. And other than that... If you want some merch, we have merch now. Oh, yes. So I'm getting awesome. a hoodie and mum is getting a T-shirt. <laughs> Um, which is very exciting. We'll be coming in the post any day. I'll, have to, I'll do a post when it comes here. Yeah, we need people to have their T-shirts on. It's an evil um, sheep because we're not, we don't flock. Yeah, mm. and we get lost on purpose. Yeah, we're, and we're <laughs> mad about it. Um, <laughs> no, we yeah. don't do what we're told. Yeah. And so, we don't follow anybody. So if you want a little, uh, a little nod to that, then uh, check yeah. it out. We'll be in the show notes. It's all yeah, ethically this... made and that's sustainable right. sourced and so on, which is important to us. So if that's important to you too, then that's covered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's like two different designs really. There's one with the evil sheep logo on it, just on its own. And then there's some with evil sheep lettering as well. So the idea of that is if you just want to be a little bit um, low key, Mm-hmm. And uh, you don't want to kind of advertise the evil sheep bit. Just the picture is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, 
uh, anyway, you've got a choice. So exactly. yes, the uh, the link will be on the show. Yeah, notes. and please do um, put a picture of you wearing yeah. yours if you've got one or if you get one. Absolutely. We'll retweet it. Absolutely. Even if you don't want to show your face, then let's just have a picture of the t-shirt. But um, yeah. obviously, if you can, that'll be great. Awesome. Okay, well, thank, well, thank you. you very much. Thanks for listening and uh, join us again. Uh, we've got some really interesting interviews coming up some very exciting interviews so uh, yeah keep joining us on the sunday and the wednesday and uh, the odd bonus episode that crops up every now and again Mm -hmm. thank you for listening bye goodbye what should i think about is an evil sheep production 